Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 40, 1 Samuel chapter 25, continued. David is a complex man, which is a nice way of saying that is upright and God-fearing and determined to be obedient to the Lord as he is, he can also be proud. He can be self-promoting and tend to overreact. At times, even let his volcanic anger and passions overwhelm even his best intentions. (coughs) Thus, when we concluded our previous lesson, David was in the throes of being consumed by a blind rage the result of an insult aimed at him by the man known as Nebal. Now, Nebal was not actually this man's given name. The Bible doesn't inform us of it. Rather, Nebal is an epithet that sums up this man's character, which is foolish, disgraceful, without godly wisdom. David and his men guarded over Nabal's substantial flocks out in the Paran and the Ma'on desert regions. And so David felt it was only proper that Nabal reward him with a gift of sustenance for his community of 600 followers. Thus a message was sent with a minyan of his men, 10 men, asking Nabal for this expected reward. Nabal not only declined, but he responded in a nasty and offensive way that just isn't done in the Middle East unless you're looking for trouble. In reality, although David's request was made in the most polite of terms, all involved understood that it was really a demand. A request that cannot be refused is not a request any longer. And Nabal, being a rich and powerful and arrogant man, didn't like David essentially requisitioning supplies from him. Well, when David received Nabal's offensive reply, he took two-thirds of his men and set off to exact revenge for this attack on, on David's honor. It was his stated intention to not leave one male left alive in Nabal's extended family that no doubt included a goodly portion of his entire clan. Now, fortunately for all concerned, Nabal had a wife who was full of grace and wisdom, Abigail. A man who had witnessed Nabal's offensive reply to David's message secretly went to Abigail, told her about it, pled with her to take some action to avoid this inevitable bloodshed that was bound to result. She sprang into action, loaded up a donkey with a substantial gift of supplies in hopes of appeasing David, all the while making sure her husband wasn't aware. This is where we'll pick up the story. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll start reading at verse 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 327. 
327. Verse 18, Abigail wasted no time in taking 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, six quarts of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes, and having them loaded on donkeys. And then she said to her young men, go on ahead of me, I'll come along after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. Now she was riding her donkey down past the hiding place in the mountain when David and his men descended toward her and she met them. David had said, What a waste it's been guarding everything this fellow has in the desert so that nothing of it was missing. He's repaid me bad for good. Then he swore, May God do the same and more to David's enemies if I leave alive even one male of everything he owns. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried to dismount from her donkey. She fell on her face in front of David and bowed down to the ground. Having fallen at his feet, she said, It's all my fault, Lord, my fault. Please, let your servant speak in your ears and listen to what your servant says. Please, my Lord shouldn't pay any attention to this worthless fellow Nabal because he's just like his name. means boor, boorishness stays with him. But I, your servant didn't see my Lord's men whom you sent. Therefore, my Lord, as Adonai lives and as you live, inasmuch as Adonai has kept you from the guilt of shedding blood and from taking vengeance in your own hands, therefore, may your enemies and anyone seeking your harm be as worthless as Nabal. Meanwhile, let this present which your servants has brought to my Lord be given to to the men in my Lord's service. And please... Forgive the offense your servant has caused. Because Adonai will certainly establish my Lord's dynasty, for my Lord fights Adonai's battles. And nothing bad has been found in your, in all your life long. Even if someone comes along searching for you and seeking your life, your life will be bound in the bundle of life with Adonai your God. But the lives of your enemies he'll fling away, as if from the pouch of a slingshot. And then when Adonai has done all the good to my Lord that he has said about you and made you ruler over Israel, what happens here won't have become an obstacle to you or cause for remorse to my Lord. Neither that you shed blood without cause, nor that my Lord took vengeance into his own hands. Finally, when Adonai has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me, and blessed be your tactfulness, blessed be yourself for having kept me today from the guilt of shedding blood and taking vengeance into my own hands. For as Adonai, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you hadn't rushed to meet me, not even one male would have been left to nib all my mourning. So David received from her what she had brought him and then said to her, Go up in peace to your home. I have listened to what you said and granted your request. Abigail came to Nabal. and Now, there he was in his house, holding a feast fit for a king, and he was in high spirits because he was very drunk. So she told him nothing, whatever, until the next morning. And in the morning, when he was sober, and his wife told him what had happened, he had a stroke. He became as motionless as a stone. Some ten days later, Adonai struck Nabal and he died. Now when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Adonai for having taken my side in the matter of Nabal's insult 
and for having prevented his servant from doing anything bad. On the contrary, Adonai has caused Nabal's bad deeds to return on his own head. And then David sent a message that he wanted to make Abigail his own wife. And when David's servants reached Abigail in Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to bring you to him to be his wife. She got up, bowed with her face to the ground and said, Your servant is here to serve you, to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. And Abigail then hurried and set out and rode off on a donkey with five of her female servants following her. She went after David's messengers. She became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Yisrael. Both of them became his wives. Meanwhile, Shaul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who came from Galim. Verse 20 explains that as David and his men were coming to make war on Nebal, it just so happened that the very route that Abigail had taken to try and intercept David just led her right to him. Now the complete Jewish Bible doesn't express this thought of amazing coincidence very well. A better way for this verse to read is right at that moment when she was riding her donkey in search of David she came across his band of men. So the idea is that nothing happens by chance. It was Jehovah's providence that set her path and the exact timing of this in motion. Now, the future Hebrew sages took this improbable timing of Abigail's encounter with David, along with some pronouncements she was going to make in this speech to him, to indicate that she was substantially more than merely a woman full of wisdom and grace. Rather, she was a prophetess of the God of Israel. In fact, the Hebrew sages of old determined that the Bible lists seven prophetesses with Abigail among them. They were Sarah, Abraham's wife, as the first, and then Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, our Abigail, um, Huldah, and Esther. Now, days and days have gone by since David and his band strapped on their weapons and left their desert accommodations for a showdown in Carmel. Verse 21 has David essentially muttering to himself as he's traveling, complaining about how he and his men guarded this man's property. They did such a good job. And still this man repays their efforts with an insult. And truly, this, see, this is the mental picture that we need to get. We have a very upset David who feels he's been cheated. A man who's roiling this over in his mind, replaying his anger again and again. Now, modern psychologists might just say he's playing those negative tapes in his head. He won't turn them off. And truly, just like for us, this was David's sort of... A enjoying being mad not particularly anxious to let it go and move on it's kind of funny but it's sin 
this is sin. It was so then and it remains so today. Verse 22, take a look at it in your Bible. Verse 22 continues with David's hissy fit. But most Bible versions have really cleaned this up. I mean substantially. The King James Version, if any of you has one, is among the most literal. And it's the best translated. Even though it's not just a little bit crude. This is what David says in a literal translation in verse 22. Ladies, put your hands over your ears. So and more also God, uh, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all pertaining to him by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. It's exactly what it says in the Bible. Yeah, you heard it. It means exactly what it says. I don't think I have to draw a diagram to explain what the last five or six words of that verse are getting at. So most versions substitute those last few words with either just male or men. You know, the Bible doesn't mince words. The reality is that so much of what we read today in our English translations has been watered down, made considerably more genteel and often less memorable and impactful than what the words actually say. This, you know, David's thoughts are, are being accurately recorded for us here. And you know, some of them aren't particularly admirable. This predecessor to Messiah, David, is a strange mixture of a stalwart shepherd and a ferocious warrior. A mix that seems utterly incompatible, almost schizophrenic. And yet, is this not the same mysterious mixture that is Yeshua? A stalwart shepherd and a ferocious warrior is our Messiah, and yet Christianity in general has decided to emphasize one attribute over the other, even to discard one over the other. Partly, I'm sure, because it's so difficult to imagine any being that can be both simultaneously. Judaism tends to discount David's human faults and his evil inclinations and puts him on a pedestal of near perfection. He is made to be far closer to the actual Messiah than it was intended. And that this is, I think, at least partly to blame for the spiritual blindness that has kept the Jewish people from intimacy with their true Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. On the other hand... I cannot begin to explain the countless conversations I've had with Christian pastors and laymen who at the same time acknowledging that David is indeed a type and an illustration of Messiah yet also sees Jesus only as a meek, 
pacifist shepherd who lovingly gave his lives for our sakes. They see the God who orders war and bloodshed for the sake of establishing his kingdom and eradicating evil as a thing of the past. War is a characteristic of the Old Testament God. Should we all be glad that our God, Yeshua, has essentially replaced that older God, Yehovah's methods, with love and mercy? You know, I often receive startled looks or blank faces when I ask these pastors and lay people to then please explain who it is that's going to be leading the war to end all wars. Armageddon. And will personally cause the blood of God's enemies to fill up the Jezreel Valley, it says, to the height of a horse's bridle. The answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. The same one who gently led twelve and then thousands to redemption as a shepherd, only to be led himself as a lamb to the slaughter on Calvary. Like David, our Messiah is shepherd and warrior. And I don't think it's long coming until we're going to be reminded of that. Poor David, however, was not Messiah. He wasn't God. So he struggled with these contrasting personal attributes of shepherd and warrior that, that, that powerfully tugged on him one way and then the other. And as he was on the road to Carmel, the warrior in him had total control. And as a result, what lay ahead was ruin. Enter Abigail. Abigail dismounts from her donkey. She prostrates herself before David. Now remember, this woman was an aristocrat. She was an attractive and intelligent wife of a wealthy and powerful man. But her station in life was of little importance to her at the moment. Her desperate hope was to stop an atrocity before it happened, to save her family and her clan, even if it meant her own personal humiliation and accepting all the blame. She was taking a great risk. Abigail makes this long speech to David and he listens intently, probably because of the surprise of finding this well-heeled woman lying on her face in this dusty road. And she tries to bring David back to his senses to make him a little more amiable and peaceful by offering three lines of reasoned thought for him to consider and then hopefully his drawing to the conclusion that he needs to back off on his intents. The first line of reasoning is that God is obviously present in this event because of the providential meeting of Abigail and David. The Lord has intervened. He's enabled Abigail's and David's paths to cross before he confronted Nabal. Thus David has been miraculously kept from murder, from incurring blood guilt as a consequence. The second line of reasoning that she offers is that Yehovah is the avenger of wickedness and wrongdoing. David shouldn't try 
to be his own avenger, seeking out a solution to his own justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, is at the heart of her argument in verse 26, where she says, May your enemies who seek evil for my Lord be like Nabal. In other words, may those who are David's enemies have vengeance heaped upon them by the Lord who will turn them into fools for their wickedness. Third, is that David? if David forgives this offense, then the Lord will give David a blessing in return because that's God's nature. In fact, Abigail generally lays out exactly what that blessing here, back by the way, the word is Bercha from Jehovah is going to consist of. First, the Lord will make David a lasting house. In other words, his family will become the ruling dynasty over Israel forever. Second, David will be privileged to continue to fight the Lord's wars. In other words, the wars David are fighting are authorized holy wars. Not only are they truly worthy of fighting, but it also means that David can't lose. Third, God will preserve David from his own wrongdoing all of his days. In fact, this point is what most of the chapter is about. The Lord saving David from himself. Fourth, is that no man will be able to take David's soul and destroy it because he will be safely bound into the bundle of life. Let's talk about that last one for a second. In verse 29, look at it. In verse 29, the complete Jewish Bible and many other translations speak of David being bound into the bundle of life. And this is generally a pretty literal translation. She is saying, uh, Abigail is saying that David's life will be bound up into this bundle of life. Now, life in Hebrew is chaim. Chaim. But here, the word referring to David's life is nefesh. That doesn't mean life. It means life essence. It's the word typically used in the Bible for soul or sometimes for spirit. So it's David's soul. It's David's life essence that will be bound up into this bundle of life. But bundle of life is actually an ancient Hebrew expression that we're running into. So we need to see if we can understand what it meant to the people of that day to be bound into the bundle of life. Okay, The Hebrew expression is bisror ha-hayim. And it indeed means speaking of some kind of a bundle of life. But the bundle isn't referring to a bag. It's not referring to a package. It's referring to a document. In the days of David, a document for the Hebrews was usually a scroll. Or even better, it was, it was an animal skin 
that had words written on it, and then it would be rolled up with a leather string tied about it. Okay, It would make it into a bundle. Thus, a better and more apt translation of this is document of life, or document of the living. So, the bundle of life is some kind of heavenly document where those whom the Lord chooses have their names placed into it. And so their life essences, their souls, are tucked safely away forever. Sound familiar? Obviously, this is a very early way of the Old Testament speaking of the heavenly book of life. Listen to Revelation 20.12. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. Books were opened. And then another book was opened. The book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. The dead were written in the book of life according to what? According to what they had done. This matches very well with Abigail telling David that by his action of forgiving the insult, changing his mind, avoiding murder, that he would be written into the book of life. So as we've discovered, the many principles, such as eternal life, the book of life, that we find in the New Testament are are but progressive developments of principles already established, even if only vaguely, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Several times in verse 28, Abigail asks David to forgive her offenses. Now on the surface... This might seem as though she is essentially asking for forgiveness on behalf of her husband. And in a roundabout way, it is. Yet that's not really the point. Okay, now, putting ourselves into the Middle Eastern mindset, we, we need to see that we have a woman speaking to a man who's not her husband. A man who's well known and to a degree feared. She has dared to approach this man, even to seek him out, when usually a man must approach the woman if there's to be a conversation, especially one of this length and subject. She's boldly intervening into her husband's affairs. And it easily could have been David's decision to treat her badly for daring to stand between two men in conflict. In fact, she's coming dangerously close to, if not stepping over the line of, an obscure Torah law that we looked into a very long time ago. Back in Deuteronomy 25, 11 and 12. If men are fighting with each other and the wife of one comes up to help her husband get away from the man attacking him by grabbing the attacker's private parts with her hand... You're to cut off her hand and show her no pity. Now certainly Abigail is not physically tussling with David here. Nonetheless, the underlying principle of Deuteronomy 25 stands. 
A woman is not to intervene in an otherwise fair fight between her husband and another man. This could have taken a number of different courses for Avigail, most of them bad. And thus her pleading with David to be forgiving towards her intervention in this matter. Now in verse 30, we have Abigail truly now apprehending this role of a prophetess, even though there's little evidence that she actually saw herself in in any kind of an official role. And, And there she looks forward to this time when God will have fulfilled His covenant promises to David in relation to David and to the throne of Israel. She uses a word in this conversation that we've become familiar with, Nagid. Abigail speaks of David as a prince over Israel, a Nagid over Israel. And this term essentially means king-in-waiting. In other words, as the Lord has anointed David as the king in waiting, but not yet king, over the Lord's kingdom, then David stands in constant danger of stumbling. The danger for David is never more imminent now that he is divinely appointed for great things by the Lord. Because there are actions that David can do to ruin his witness, perhaps even ruin his opportunity to be a wonderful tool in the Lord's hand. And Abigail continues, the thing that David is on his way to accomplish is to shed blood in vain, that is to commit blood guilt. To commit blood guilt means to take a human life unjustly. Now here's the thing about blood guilt. There's no atonement possible for it under the Levitical system. There's no sacrifice available. The only just outcome for the perpetrator of blood guilt is to have his own life's blood spilled. No innocent animal losing its life or some priestly ritual done before the Lord is allowed to substitute for it. If David does this thing, he goes and he kills Nabal and all these men, he's committed a grave trespass for which there is no forgiveness. And there's yet another danger that Abigail says that David's in. in. David is in that he just might seek to gain the Lord's victory for himself. In other words, just as David has made it clear that he knows he's not to win the throne of Israel by his own actions, such as murdering Saul, neither is he to avenge wrongs done to him by means of his own actions, such as by killing Nabal and all of his family. Well, she ends her speech by asking David to remember her in the future for what she has done today. Abigail recognized the father's guiding hand in David's life and that his destiny was as Israel's king. How did she know this? How did she know this? See, this is why she's counted as among only seven prophetesses. 
Such understanding could only have come from Yehovah. But she did more than merely recognize David's destiny. She took an active role to preserve it. Even if it meant risking her own life. And I, I think that we need to consider not only the blessing that we have gained from our acceptance of God's covenant provision for us as His believers, but also the danger we are all in at times because we have made this commitment to Him. The devil doesn't waste his time with unbelievers except to use them as pawns to do his dirty work. Rather, his main efforts are to confound the lives of the disciples of Yeshua, to derail the wonderful purposes that the Father has for our lives, especially as it pertains to the kingdom of God. You know, I shudder at how close we must come, often, to disaster, and we don't even recognize it. I look back on my own life, and as thankful as I am, for the Lord mercifully choosing to use me for His purposes, I'm at least also at least a little bit aware that had I been more obedient and more faithful, I would be a far better witness, a much better teacher, a better family man, a much more useful servant to Him. What opportunities I have lost from my sin... What could have been greater gain for the kingdom, I may never know, this side of heaven. As great as David was, I suspect that as the end of his life neared, he looked back with regrets and realizations that so much more could have been accomplished through him had he only been more submissive to God. Beginning in verse 32... David responds to Abigail in what can only be described as a startling act of humility of a Middle Eastern man towards a, a woman. David agrees that Abigail is entirely correct and he is entirely wrong. Not only does David forgive her for her bold intervention, but he, does, he bestows compliments and, and blessings and admits that she must be an emissary of the God of Israel. And had she not been obedient to the Lord, had she allowed her fears to take over, had she shrank from her divine assignment, not only would her family be gone, but David would have become mired in blood guilt. David recognizes that as much as she has saved her family, she saved him. This is a characteristic of David that I'd have to speculate pleases the Lord. What he, when he's done wrong, or if he's contemplating wrong, and then when he's confronted with it, he's contrite. He admits his guilt before the Lord. He acknowledges that even above those who he has harmed, it's Yehovah who he sinned against. A contrite heart is the key 
to true repentance. David accepts the supplies she's brought, then commands Abigail to go home in peace. In other words, he says, I'm not going to attack your home or your family, not even that dastardly husband of yours. And when Abigail gets back home, Nabal has no idea that she's been up, what she's been up to and how close he's come to losing his life in this whole deal. Nor does he have any idea that it was his wife who has delivered the entire clan from certain eradication. He was drunk when she came home, so she decided not to inform him of what had transpired, at least for the moment. But in the morning, after he sobered up, Abigail told him what had occurred, and almost immediately he had a stroke. Within ten days, he died. Abigail was right. The Lord will avenge. The insolent and worthless Nabal was struck down by Jehovah, not by David. The Lord taking Nabal's life was the Lord exacting perfect justice on David's behalf. David taking Nabal's life would have been unjust. It would have been an unforgivable sin on David's head. You know, this is a great lesson for us when we contemplate taking matters into our own hands. And I mentioned last week that there's often significance of numbers in the Bible, and ten is one of the more significant numbers. Notice that Nabal died ten days after he received the message of God's deliverance of his family, which was the same number as the number of men who came to Nabal with David's message. Ten is a number of fullness, right, in the sense that it's been brought to its fullest extent. Ten is a number of perfect completeness, not perfect ending, but rather something that has been made all it was purposed to be. Ten is a number of divine order as opposed to chaos. Thus also, the proper measure of our giving of our wealth back to the Lord is one-tenth. Evidence is gathering in modern physics that there are ten dimensions of existence. Jewish mysticism has for 500 years made the claim that the Bible describes ten dimensions of existence. So when we come across the number ten in the Bible, always pay special attention just as we do when we see the number seven. Well, the chapter ends with Abigail, who is now Nabal's wife, uh, now Nabal's widow, um, about to become David's wife. And David sends messengers to her. And her response is very interesting. And we're going to end today's study by talking about her response. She says in 1 Samuel 25, uh, verse 41, it says here, She got up, bowed her face to the ground, and said, Your servant is here to serve you, to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Now this remark 
is significant, especially when we incorporate the concept that David is a type and shadow of Messiah. Note that Abigail speaks not of washing David's feet, but rather the feet of his followers. David's servants. And since she has accepted now David's offer of marriage in front of witnesses, she's betrothed. As of that instant, she is David's wife, the master's wife, with, the, with only the act of consummation left to finalize the marriage. And yet, she still speaks of herself as a servant who wants to wash the feet of her husband's servants. Now, does any of this have a familiar ring to you? Turn to John, the book of John in your Bible, chapter 13. Book of John, chapter 13. Book of John, chapter 13, page 1348, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of this chapter and we'll end with this. Fascinating. It was just before the festival of Passover, and Yeshua knew that the time had come for him to pass from this world to the Father. Having loved his own people in the world, he loved them to the end. They were at supper, and the adversary had already put the desire to betray him into the heart of Yehuda ben Shimon from Creot. Yeshua was aware that the Father had put everything in his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he rose from the table, he removed his outer garments, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. (laughs) Then he poured some water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and wiped them off with the towel wrapped around him. He came to Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you're washing my feet? And Yeshua answered him, you don't understand yet what I'm doing, but in time you'll understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Yeshua answered him, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. Lord, Shimon Kepha replied, not only my feet, but my hands and my head too. Yeshua said to him, a man who has had a bath doesn't need to wash except his feet. His body's already clean. And you people are clean, but not all of you. He knew who was betraying him, and this is why he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, taken back his clothes, and returned to the table, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me Rabbi and Lord, and you're right, because I am. Now if I, the Lord and Rabbi, have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet. For I have set you an example, so that you may do as I have done to you. Yes, indeed, I tell you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor an emissary greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not talking to all of you. I know which ones I've chosen. But the words of the Tanakh, the scriptures, the Old Testament, must be fulfilled that say, the one eating my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, 
so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. Yes, indeed, I tell you that a person who receives someone I send receives me, and that anyone who receives me receives the one who sent me. Truly, the Hebrew sages of old were right to assign Abigail the title of God's prophetess. This foot-washing episode in Samuel comes, comes at us out of left field. Right? And one finds difficulty in its meaning and its purpose if it's not attached to the New Testament book of John. And truly, David was a wise man to immediately go after such a woman when she became a widow at God's hand. Yet we also find now that David married not only Abigail, but a woman from the city of Yisrael whose name was Ahinoam. My brother is delight. Yisrael is not the Jezreel Valley in the north of the land. But it's a place in Judah, in the general vicinity of Maon and Zeph and Carmel. Now Saul had a wife named Ahinoam. And some think this is the same woman, but that seems pretty far-fetched. And there's, there's no evidence whatsoever to consider that kind of a conclusion beyond them having the same name. Now most likely, David married Ahinoam before marrying Abigail, because Ahinoam became mother to David's firstborn, Amnon. Even more, in later books of the Bible, when the two women are mentioned in the same context, Ahinoam is always mentioned before Abigail. And this is a very ancient literary formula that describes status. Now no doubt there was also politics at play in these marriages. David married prominent women from two different clans located in different regions in Judah. Marrying into these families would have given David a foothold as a future ruler and gained him the backing of those clans. Marriage as a means of gaining allies was standard procedure in those days. It wasn't considered underhanded at all. Rather, it was practical. It was customary. Families were anxious. They were willing for such intermingling and connections with the ruling elite. The final verse of this chapter explains that Saul willfully, Saul willfully and spitefully gave his daughter, David's wife, Michal, to another man. Well, this reckless act ended all possibility of reconciliation between David and Saul. The man she was given to is known by two names in the Bible, Palti and Palti El. By Torah law standards, Michal was forced into adultery because her husband David had not divorced her. Palti El was also guilty of taking the wife of another man. Adultery was another trespass that had no atonement possible. So the crime before the Lord was severe, unforgivable, and eternal. Yet because David had not divorced Michal, he had every right 
to ask for her to be returned to him as he was negotiating with Abner on his way to becoming king of Israel and in taking her back he would be committing no crime rather he was actually restoring her okay we'll begin chapter 26 next week